like you could never have built a home uh, in the north with the building standards there with the same kind of energy efficiency construct as you can in the south like we moved here and it's like you know single pane windows and insulations kind of an afterthought <laughs> for the most part and everybody puts in cheap electric heating for a lot of whether it's a hotel or whether mobile homes or whatever the case is you can put in electric strip heating very very cheaply so you put that in because it's only going to run you know one, a few days a year who cares we are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis, episode 34 on deck. But before we get into our guest for today, Mr. Jeff Marola, Executive Vice President and Co-Founder of Intelometry. Just a couple housekeeping items that we want to take care of first and get you going with Mr. Marola. First off, our CEO and founder, Mr. Mike Niemer, telling you a little bit about what we do here at eRenewable. At eRenewable, what we do is we bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both PPAs and BPPAs. Our electronic management tool helps streamline that RFP process. So whether you're a buyer or a seller of wind, solar, battery storage, our platform can provide you the efficiencies needing pricing for your organization. And so with regards to wind or solar, you know, wind's kind of uh, taking a second seat to solar, it sounds like this year, based on everything that's gone on from the ERCOT situation on backwards. Whether you're a developer and you've got a leftover merchant piece of power that you need to get auctioned off and you want to get contracted up in a PPA, we can we can auction your merchant piece available. Whether you're a developer and you want to build a new build project, we can auction that. And within our auctions, we give the participants a chance to have a variety of terms that they can participate in and a variety of volumes. So they can enter what volumes that they need for their projects. So, you know, that's really uh, what eRenewable is about and what it started for and was founded on was the auction. Like I say, we're, we're in the middle of working on a battery storage project. We're gonna bring that auction to the public and hopefully all of our listeners will want to show up and participate in that. Thank you so much for that, Mike. As always, you can go check out all the information about eRenewable at our website, eRenew.net. You can also find us on LinkedIn as well. If you have any questions for Mr. Niemer, you can always give us a phone call as well. 1-866-ERENEW1. That's 1-866-ERENEW1. All right. Every other week, you know, we do the Name and News Minute with Mr. Steve Shepard and or Ms. Donna Foy. Well, they've got a very special announcement. Uh, therefore, we've got another Name and News Minute for you today. Very excited about that. But it's a special announcement coming from Mr. Steve Shepard. Of course, you know Steve, the executive director of NEMA, as well as Mr. Jim Richardson, who is the director of energy marketing for Avant Energy Incorporated, as well as the president of NEMA's board of directors. So without further ado, Mr. Steve Shepard. Steve? Thanks, Fred. We really appreciate the opportunity to provide this special NEMA update for the Green Insiders listeners. 
Before we get to the special news, though, I want to give a couple quick reminders regarding our virtual presentation series. We have a great lineup coming up. Sham Khan from Aces Power and Name is Board of Directors will join me for a special discussion with Kevin Helmick, Amazon Web Services. Kevin, who has experience on both sides of the transaction, will share his insights into how a large global entity like Amazon gets to 100% renewable energy supply, the critical transaction objectives of CNI end users, and the next evolution of renewable energy transactions, to name a few of the highlights. The discussion with Kevin is this Wednesday, April 14th. That's followed by Julian Dumont smith from Bank of America sharing his insights into the 2021 energy market on Wednesday, April 28th. And a new addition to the schedule is Marissa Barron from Level 10 Energy on Wednesday, May 12th, sharing insights into the PPA price index, the growing use of social justice issues as a factor in the PPA procurement process for corporations and how corporate clients evaluate and choose PPAs. All the presentations are at 3 Eastern via Zoom. Now, for the special news, we're pleased to announce that NEMA is teaming up with Data Center Dynamics as an industry partner for the DCD Grid Scale virtual event on April 28th and 29th. As part of the event, Jim Richardson, NEMA's board president, will be anchoring a roundtable on the evolving relationship between data centers and the energy industry. The roundtable will be held on Wednesday, April 28th at 5 Eastern, and registration is free. Thank you for that, Steve. Let's welcome Jim Richardson, president of NEMA's board of directors and director of energy marketing for Avant Energy Incorporated. Of course, you've got the webinar going down on Wednesday, April 28th. Jim, first question for you, who's joining you on the roundtable? Thanks, Fred. Uh, we have a great panel lineup, um, including Bill Kleeman, Executive Vice President of Digital Solutions for Switch, Todd Hillman, Senior Vice President and Chief Customer Officer at MISO, Joni Hampson, Senior Director of Origination for EDF Renewables, and several other additional panelists that we'll announce shortly. And why is it important that you bring all these energy providers as well as the data center companies together? The explosive growth in data centers, the transition to renewables, and the need to maintain reliability. These are three hugely important topics and they're all interconnected. Each of these requires massive investment and a long-term viability of those investments. So getting this right requires a greater understanding, cooperation, and collaboration between energy providers and the data center industry. We really need to develop constructive relationships between the energy and data center industries as these markets evolve. So DCD, or Data Center Dynamics, produces high-quality conferences, events, focused on the data center market worldwide. And NEMA is pleased to join DCD as an industry partner for this conference to bring energy providers to the table. Is there space in that equation for all types of market participants or is it just for utilities? No, yes, it, it's already happening. The data centers have been signing PPAs, purchase power agreements with renewable energy developers to offset part or all of their non-renewable energy use. In some cases, the data centers are contracting uh, for the renewable energy output directly. So opportunities are growing for all types of providers in the data center market, but they need to understand the data center needs. Likewise, data center developers benefit from a better understanding of the realities and the nuances in the energy markets. 
Thanks, Jim. We're really looking forward to DCD Grid Scale and very excited to have the opportunity to participate with the roundtable. You can find more information on DCD Grid Scale and the link to register on NEMA's website, NEMA.com. That's it for now. We look forward to giving another update soon. Thanks, Fred. Now it's time for our featured guest, Mr. Jeff Marola, Executive Vice President and Co-Founder over at Intelometry, talking all things their energy software, including their platform in retail suite, as well as maneuvering the market over the last 17 years and and what it means to be a tempered radical and much more. So without further ado, let's welcome to the program, Mr. Jeff Marola. I actually was working for an electric utility up in the Pittsburgh area, Allegheny Energy, back in the late 90s when the whole idea of really having competition in the electric industry came about. Pennsylvania was one of the first states to open up in the country, kind of right on the heels of California at that point. One of the things that I, I was able to do as part of my career is really start up the deregulated arm for Allegheny Energy to move into this new competitive sector. In doing that, I really, the whole industry was new, right? No, nobody had ever done this before. So you really got to go through and, and learn kind of every facet of the business, how it operates in terms of how do you purchase energy on the wholesale market and then productize that and turn it into something that, you know, a consumer is going to want to purchase. At that point, you know, here in Texas, we're, we're pretty familiar with the whole idea of being able to choose your energy supplier. But at that time, it was a completely foreign concept, you know, to this day and in, in a good part of the U.S., it's you don't have that option at all. Had that opportunity to really start from the ground up the business to, to supply uh, energy to the end consumer, you know, um, anything from homes up to industrial customers. That was really kind of the very kind of mid to late 90s. At that point, I was really at the at the point of having the opportunity to either kind of go to work for a trading. Uh, we, we were purchasing a trading company in New York City, and the company wanted me to kind of move up to the New York area. And, uh, we didn't really have a great desire as a family between my wife and I to move up to the New York City area. And so started looking for different opportunities, and I ended up taking a job with Enron on uh, with Enron Energy Services back in 2000, uh, 2001 uh, time frame. That's actually where I met up with uh, one of my partners, Guy Sharfman. We were both supporting the retail uh, business there from logistics side, as well as the trading and risk management perspective. At the time, everybody knew the Enron story. Now, 20 some years later, a lot of folks uh, aren't familiar with it, but Enron went bankrupt about a year after uh, after I started. Subsequent uh, to that, Guy and I actually started a consulting, a business consulting practice for a firm out of Los Angeles after after the bankruptcy and leaving that, leaving Enron, of course, with, with what happened there. So you uh, moved to, from Pittsburgh to Houston. To Houston. You're, you're, you're not mm-hmm. even at Enron a year. How long were you at, at Enron before you started to realize, oh man, this we may not be long for this? Probably talked to my wife about a month into it. Not Not that I was concerned of anything shady, but just that the 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 way that the the business transactions were being done just didn't make financial sense to me. Um, there were at that time basically there were um, conch, the, the the Enron Energy Services was kind of one of the leaders in in you know what is now being kind of turned into energy as a service from an industry perspective. Um, but basically doing these very long term contracts with companies like uh, IBM or you know um, or any of the any of the large majors at that point where they would manage the entire business. So it'd be everything from, you know, installing energy efficient lights to um, taking over the supply for the commodity piece, really anything and everything kind of energy related with the idea that whatever 
savings produced from that would be obviously partially come, come back to Enron Energy Services and in part be uh, put back to the customer. And part of that was really a big cash incentive up at the front end of that that deal. So, you know, they'd write a check to to the company on the other side for, you know, $50 million. And of course, Enron was going to make back that money over time as part of achieving the savings that was that was expected. Just looking at the cash flow of those deals and the fact that you're trying to predict something that you really can't predict out 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it's not that there's anything not legitimate about it from a business perspective, right? But it just from a financial perspective, I'd sit there and question, well, okay, how, how is this sustainable, right? You have to keep borrowing money so that you can pay this huge check, hopefully make money on savings that you're benchmarking to something that nobody has any idea what you know a utility rate in uh, 10 years is going to be. So that was kind of my first inclination, not again from, from any kind of sinister thing. Then about six months into it, as I was there for about a year, I started a year before bank- bankruptcy and then left about a month after bankruptcy. About six months into it, I started hearing more about the issues or concerns on the wholesale trading side. And I'd made enough acquaintances and, and friends and everything on that side to know that well, that was kind of the cash cow of the business. So if there were any concerns on that front, I'm not sure how long, you know, this, this whole thing sustainable. So at that point I started looking for a job. <laughs> so you weren't even there eight months and you were already started putting feelers out. Yes. Yes. It, it, it happiness uh, for, for my wife. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so obviously you meet guy along the way and had you, yeah. had you worked for yourself before or was this? No. Something- yeah, no, not not at all. Yeah, I had worked for coming out of college. I went to work for the utility up until coming to Enron. I was with Allegheny Energy or divisions of Allegheny Energy for what, about uh, 10, uh, 10 years. And so then went to Enron from there and um, then then started the consulting practice at that point after bankruptcy. And that was really kind of the closest to starting my own thing at that point. Uh, it was an established firm, but they wanted us to start really a business consulting practice for them that stage. That's actually how I ended up meeting my other partners. We ended up doing a joint proposal for a uh, oil company here in the Houston area to install a new energy trading and risk management system for them. And their backgrounds are really from the perspective of uh, the technology side and particularly around the wholesale energy markets. And so we ended up doing that project jointly. From that, they were with a, a division of a IT company out of Canada at the time that had been acquired uh, from Deloitte. We decided, you know, looking at this space at that point, you know, this was 2003, getting into 2004. Again, the the whole industry was still pretty much early stages, right? It kind of started kind of the, the late 90s. Being in the early stages, and then kind of taking our backgrounds, guy been from a retail supplier as well as, as myself and you know them having the technology background I said you know it'd be really great if we could come to the market with a platform to support this very unique business because there really is nothing out there everybody had kind of done homegrown systems that were cobbled together from excel or access or whatever solution they could figure out and they were typically geared to one individual market so like if they started in texas it could do business in Texas. If it started in Pennsylvania, it could do business in Pennsylvania, but it couldn't do, you know, really couldn't support the entire country from an operational footprint perspective. And so we really decided, well, let's let's begin building this platform. The idea of building it 
said, for, for all aspects, kind of front, middle, and back office, but also to support the entire country as opposed to one market. So let's kind of have a common vision and common definition of semantics across the industry, because that's really one thing that's unique. I always tell people that this, the retail supply side is the most complex transactional business in the world, probably by far. And a large part of that is because every single market is completely different in terms of operations because basically the utility is to find the rules. So if I go to, you know, one utility in New York, like uh, Con Ed, for example, that supplies New York City, I will have a completely different set of rules to operate in as if I go to Chicago and go to Commonwealth Edison in Chicago. And so every market has been able to basically define their own processes, their own rules, their own transactions. And you have kind of an energy supplier having to navigate all of that, but still, you know, deliver a quality, quality customer experience and a quality product, you know, back to back to your individual customer, even though the utility kind of holds all the cards and and comes up with their own rules and mechanics for how to do business with them. When you talked about you were going to build this retail suite out across the country, mm-hmm. you burned across the country in the 15 only deregulated states. Would you also do business in all the regulated states? to the utilities within those states too? Good question, distinguishment there. And and yeah, we really from the beginning, our focus was the deregulated markets. And so it would really be the, the states that were open for competition. Now that has changed over time, mostly with, with the activities around the renewable space. Part of what we've built in terms of a platform, we focused a lot really kind of on the granularity of the data, the configurability of the application in terms of being able to support different markets. We then constructed really all the ability to kind of uh, ingest all the unique different files from all the different utilities and different structures. Well, you start to enter into the renewables side four or five years ago, call it, where things like net metering started to become prevalent across the different utilities. So net metering just meaning kind of how does the utility manage the data between if you have generation on site, which can be a solar cell on your roof, right? And if you have, uh, of course, your consumption, you know, how are they actually billing you or crediting you for your solar output versus what your consumption is that you would normally have had, you know, with or without the, the solar output and are you kind of getting market credit for that are you getting some reduction on your bill like there's all sorts of mechanisms as to how that actually works kind of back to your question mike it's overlaying kind of all these additional complexities that started to come into the industry one of the things we found very readily then is that we were extremely well positioned as all these different technologies started to come on the on the forefront so whether it's battery storage whether it's Uh, installing solar cells on the roof, whether it's community solar, there are some common threads to that analysis. One of it is kind of a deep understanding of the utility tariffs and the utility mechanics, regardless really at that point, whether it's a regulated or deregulated state, because you have to navigate, just like I said, kind of the retail supply side is the most transactionally complex business in the world. Adding on, you know, what's happening in the energy industry is only making that more and more complex over time because I had this whole thing with the deregulated side where every utility had their own rules. Well, now you kind of expand that to the renewable space. It's not just those that are open for customer choice, but now I'm trying to do battery storage. I'm trying to install community solar, et cetera, on utilities all across the country. 
every one of those utilities now has its own unique rules as to how all those mechanics work. And so we were able to leverage a lot of what we had built from a software platform perspective, as well as a lot of our market data to then say, okay, whether it's evaluating, you know, we'll work with battery storage companies, for example, to say, all right, well, if you were to look at all the utilities across a particular region, which of them have the best opportunity because of how high the demand rates are on the tariff, for example. That doesn't matter whether it's a regulated or a regulated market, I should say, or a, um, a market that has customer choice. I could still install uh, battery storage behind the meter and reduce the demand charges the customer's gonna get from the utility. And so we'll perform tariff analysis, for example, and use a lot of our market data and information to say, all right, well, yeah, these are the areas that you have the highest potential to go install a battery where, of course, the capital cost of the batteries would be recoverable in a reasonable time if you shave off, you know, one hour, two hour, four hours a week each day to reduce those demand charges. So we've really been able to kind of extend from that original focus on the the customer choice markets, kind of the, you know, uh, 15 or so states that are open to really any market because of um, kind of the construct and the approach we took with with the foundation to be able to, to really leverage it as it's as the as the energy market is now so dynamically changing. Now, as you've expanded into those batteries and the rooftops and the community solar valuations that you're doing, has your customer base truly expanded or has the customers you already dealt with in deregulated markets just taken your product and expanded themselves, thus expanded you across the other 35 states? So a little bit of both. Yeah, it's actually, I would say from a customer perspective, you know, it's expanded us out of just uh, our, prim- our primary customers are still, still retail energy suppliers, but we now do a lot more work with investment banks, um, with the financial community with government agencies, for example, that are sponsoring investment in community solar. So they're, uh, you know, government are are arms of uh, different state governments, investment bank, but are basically doing it on behalf of the state to make decisions to finance a, a new renewable project. But we also, with our traditional customers, you know, they are now looking at how do I marry commodity offerings with all the different kind of plethora of, of options that are out there now. For example, I could go offer a customer a fixed price for energy for the next year, right? And maybe it comes out to $50 a megawatt hour if I were going to price that. But what if I marry up installing a PV cell, PV array at the same time um, on the rooftop? Well, what does that do to the fixed price, right? Well, now maybe I can offer them a fixed price of $25 a megawatt hour because that PV array is going to be putting out at, at the uh, most expensive times in the market um, when the sun's blazing, you know, like here in Texas on the rooftop. And so the air conditioning would be going through the roof. So we can now evaluate that and say, all right, if we were to marry these two together, kind of what is the combination of that look like? And what is the net impact look like in terms of should I go ahead and install that? Does it pay for itself from uh, the installation of the, of the solar array? And that really also can extend out to the, de- the regulated um, markets as well that don't have customer choice because it really becomes a very similar kind of financial modeling and financial analysis that we can support at that point um, for our customers that are really all of our customers now at this point or the majority of them from a retail supply perspective are everybody's kind of trying to figure out how to, to marry up this new mix in, in the market. So what's interesting yeah. then is you guys are kind of 
right in the crux then of the energy transition, right? So you guys are sitting there. You guys are kind of balancing from the, again, from a back-end standpoint with the fossil fuels on one side, natural gas, what have you, with the renewables. What, um, and again, I know you guys are talking about that right now. So is that something that in retail, is that something that, and I know just from reading a, an article you guys did, granted, granted it was a few years ago with, with CIO, talking about uh, a company mm-hmm. that did rooftop solar had come to you guys and was trying to get a value right. proposition. So is that kind mm-hmm. of, you know, and, and so when you talk about marrying the two together, is that kind of goes to that when it comes to, or is that something different when it comes to rooftop solar? Uh, no, it's absolutely, um, it, it's absolutely connected because basically, Part of in retail is a valuation engine. It's valuing all of the costs of being able to supply a customer with uh, with a commodity, uh, with our. In addition to the utility tariff components, and so just thinking about it, kind of big pictures, right? You have the you have the charges like here in Texas. You have TD what we call TDSP charges. They're basically the 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 charges on your bill that are from the utility. So they come from CenterPoint or they come from Encore. But then you also have the component that is coming from your retail supplier, which is really your your um, the the energy itself. So you're basically paying wires charges and you're paying the the um, generation charges. And our application can handle the calculations for both of those, but it also can handle the detailed usage information that needs to go into that valuation at a very granular basis. So. Um, here in Texas, your meter measures your usage every 15 minutes, right? So we have to ingest all that historical 15-minute data so that you can run modeling to decide, okay, you know, does this make financial sense? Kind of what's the what's the correlation between a particular customer's usage pattern and the actual cost of energy every every 15 minutes on the market uh, historically, and then kind of forecast that out and model it to say, all right, well, what does that look like going forward if I add other components into it than just the just the base commodity? We'd be remiss if we didn't ask you something about ERCOT, because obviously, you know, you being here in Texas. What, um, I guess my first question for you would be, given all the information that's out there, how surprised were you, and, and cold weather notwithstanding, how surprised were you that you know, ERCOT and, and everything went down the way it did. And we ended up in a four day freeze that obviously gripped the country for, you know, as long as it did. Um, yeah, I, I, I won't, I won't profess to have a crystal ball that would have ever predicted <laughs> that what happened in February happened. I will, I will definitely say I was surprised that was, um, it was anywhere near as severe as it was, both in terms of, you know, I've lived here now in Texas for, for 20 years. We've never seen certainly in the 20 years that I've been here, you know, usually it gets cold for one night, right? And then by the next, but by the next morning, you know, the sun's back out, it's 50 something degrees and okay, yeah, it was annoying. You lost a couple plants in the backyard, but who cares, right? <laughs> like you move on, you know, you have this where it's like, well, you had two, two cold fronts come through one right after another, and you had several days of sustained cold. That part's highly unusual, certainly from weather pattern perspective. And Obviously, since you know, since I think ERCOT's been existed in existence, it's it's a very unusual event. The fact that there were some rolling blackouts, given the nature of it, certainly didn't surprise me. I think the other piece it's it's not really talked much about, but part of the penalty or part of the issue I think you saw 
with what happened is because we don't experience those super cold events, right, in part, building standards here, like coming from the north, like you could never have built a home uh, in the north with the building standards there with the same kind of energy efficiency construct as you can in the south. Like we moved here and it's like, you know, single pane windows and insulations kind of an afterthought <laughs> for the most part. And everybody puts in cheap electric heating for a lot of whether it's a hotel or whether mobile homes or whatever the case is, you can put in electric strip heating very, very cheaply. So you put that in because it's only going to run, you know, one, a few days a year. Who cares? Well, the problem is when you have a spell like this, suddenly the demand's going up almost exponentially because you have all these cheap heating sources that have basically been there to save money on the on the original construction. But, you know, now you kind of pay the piper, right? The You, you suddenly need an incredible amount of energy. What did an intelometry do in the wake of uh, what happened to ERCOT? I mean, we've been incredibly busy since it happened. We were already incredibly busy just because of COVID and all the impacts that it's had on suppliers from COVID. Um, certainly, Snowgeddon or Snowvid or whatever you want to call it from, <laughs> from February um, has, uh, has certainly amplified that even further. And it's really been a, kind of across the board from almost every angle. It's either, you know, customers that are in distress because they, they took the financial hit um, from it to customers who are in much better position. And so they're looking for potential opportunities to purchase books before you know that company actually goes bankrupt or, or, or defaults their customers back um, to a provider of last resort through, through the ERCOT mechanism to just even our customers um, that you know are trying to build, build their customers and they don't, don't know, well, are the prices going to get reposted um, how long should they wait to figure out whether or not what's going on in the legislature um, and all the political debates as to, you know, whether or not the prices are going to be reset or whether there's going to be some refund mechanic or, or, or what, what have you in terms of, of um, what to do from just a billing perspective. So you got customers sitting on, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars of, of, of collections that are required just kind of stuck in the middle of, um, of, of the whole kind of political process and, and the fallout from it. So working a lot with them on that and, and how to get through the, um, the, the billing computations and the side on that. And then from the pricing side on the front end and the forecasting side, you know how this have this anomalous event, kind of what do you want to do with it when you forecast customers load back into the future? Because not only do you have kind of extreme cold temperatures, which that's, you know, actually good from a modeling perspective, you now have, you now have these extremes that you may not have had historically to help you with forecasting. But now you've got all these weird periods of, you know, four, four hours out and four hours on and eight hours out and 12 hours on. So it's kind of like, what do you do with that data from a, from a customer management perspective? And um, so it's really been from every end of the, the business that, that it's, um, that it's, brought up kind of activity on our side as well as questions. And now even on the regulatory front, we do a lot of um, work across the country, um, uh, everything from kind of like testifying before, you know, commissions and, um, and state legislatures on competitive issues. You know, that's now starting to become at the forefront because, you know, people are now saying, well, you know, should, should we re-regulate? 
um, from a uh, supplier, from a, a customer choice perspective and kind of, you know, go back to the time period where customers didn't have choice. And so I can see that that's going to be an ongoing debate and topic here for, for many months to come. Let's move that to the renewable space for just a little bit. Mm -hmm. What are you hearing with regards to the virtual PPA? Because in, if they had an ERCOT one during that time period, the buyers of that virtual PPA, they get a big check back because it's a contract for differences and the price went higher and they were long. Firstly, mm -hmm. that developer that sold it to them, if not hedged properly, took it on the chin that month, having to write that big check to the customer. Maybe the VPPAs in ERCOT are going to slow down a bit because of what just happened with the freeze. Do you hear any talk about that at all? Definitely think that folks are going to be re-evaluating the risk they're taking in in these contracts, whether it's kind of the developer side or just even you know how the how the pricing mechanisms work. I think that's absolutely going to be a, a huge component of. It. It's also going to get interjected. Just uh, thinking back, kind of from the from what I was explaining on the residential side, more broadly in the renewable space, you know, there's a big push now to eliminate any type of product that carries through real-time pricing to the consumer because of, like you were mentioning, like the gritty example, right? If you think about it in terms of all of these different options, whether it's PPAs that end up getting divided out and basically, you know, put to the homeowner, or whether it's any form of demand management, demand response, all of those are really reliant upon the fact that you can mitigate or take advantage of financially the fact that there is there are higher prices at certain points in the day and there are lower prices at the remaining portion of the day. So I will be interested to see how they actually come down on this. Like if it's just a complete nobody can have any form of contract that has any tie to actual real-time prices in which as opposed to just putting a price cap on like on the wholesale side right we have a price cap now one can argue if the price cap was too high given what happened in february but there's a price cap in the retail side there was really no there was no legislation or anything well you could have a price cap but instead of kind of going that route they've said well we're just going to throw out any form of real-time pricing for consumers period but that now makes contractually and from a product structuring and just a product offering perspective, any of these products that combine any form of renewables, demand response resources, et cetera, much more complicated to actually give the right signal to the consumer to say, well, this is how you can save money by going down these various paths, right? Because now you've said, I basically can't incorporate any of those benefits, at least not directly. I have to kind of obfuscate them into my product offering because it's been legally you know um, uh, outlawed in terms of the of uh, of the texas you know rule set that comes out so sorry diverted a little bit from your question there but i think you know past the virtual i think the virtual ppas and everything from the renewable side definitely i think everybody's going to be looking contractually um, at, at how this event unfolded and and what their what they're going to do going forward, whether it's specific kind of generation assets or whether it's product offerings in the market from the retail side, or whether it's, you know, products to, to larger consumers, you know, um, industrials and even how industrials kind of hedge themselves and how they intermix distributed generation in the picture to try to mitigate some of these risks along with, um, along with their supply agreements. I think all of that's gonna be up for, you know, everybody redebating 
you know, going forward. When you guys started back in 03, it was essentially you and Guy, who were both from the trading side. and you James and, James and Jerry. James yeah. and Jerry. A lot of J's there. <laughs> yep. They were from the IT side, right? So you had two. Right. So, I mean, it literally was the perfect marriage of you had two IT guys, two trader guys, and bringing everything together. So I'm curious to know in these last 17 years, kind of a twofold question. One, what was the biggest challenge starting out for you guys when you guys got going, especially since you guys kind of had the, the battle scars from what went down at Enron? And mm -hmm. renewables notwithstanding, what's been kind of the biggest thing that in telemetry, when you guys started out 17 years ago and kind of had this vision of what it was going to become, to what it's kind of morphed into now that maybe is a surprise to you or, or wasn't a surprise to where we are 17 years later? Well, it's hard to say, I guess, what the biggest was. I'll have to think about it a little bit. But it's, uh, I think you kind of enter any new business not really knowing what's going to unfold as you as you as you kind of move forward in that process and i would say probably kind of talked about the complexity of this space and the complexity of the of just the energy transaction in general i think as we went into it kind of went through that process i think certainly we underestimated even the complexity that we already knew existed in terms of what it's actually going to take to tie all this together and make it make it supportable across so many different functions of the business. Going through iteration and iteration of that, at the same time, technology is changing dramatically, right? Every, you know, you go back to when we first started this, you know, smartphones really weren't a thing, right? Um, no. You know, <laughs> you know, now you kind of fast forward. It's like we basically have to rebuild our computational engines and our architectures about every three years just to keep up with fast the hardware and the software and everything that's behind it is is moving so you're not only kind of adapting for the market changes you're adapting for the technology changes and then you're adapting for the industry changes in terms of what's coming um you know like we've talked about um in all the uh, demand response and and uh, energy efficiency and renewable spectrum and how all of that's kind of trying to coalesce around some vision that frankly I haven't seen any any company yet from from a supplier perspective really figure out how to make it all work together. And so uh, that's definitely an ongoing challenge and kind of has been from from the beginning. But it's also what makes it fun, right? If it were if it were easy, then they wouldn't need us <laughs> to to be in in the mix of it. You guys said something that really caught my attention: tempered radicals. What exactly does that mean? And what is it about that, that, that philosophy where, again, you don't want to be some mad, crazy genius. I mean, maybe you do in some capacity. How has that fueled what you guys do? Because one of the things you guys commented on in, in, in that article was, you know, you guys want your people to think entrepreneurially. And, mm -hmm. you know, that seems to be kind of a chic thing to say. But, again, this article was five, right. six years ago. So this is obviously something that you guys have been thinking about. And, again, having done this now for 17 years and done so at a high level, what is it about that approach that, uh, A, kind of what was it born from? And, and obviously, it's work for you? I think it first has to step from your attitude and your approach with your customer, right? So one thing that we wanted to focus on from the beginning, and part of this is coming from, you know, coming from being with, with energy suppliers prior, but also we kind of moved into the consulting side after that. And so, and as well as my partners kind of came from the consulting side. And so it's always about how are you providing a solution to your customer, right? At the end of the day, it's not about a tool. It's not about a piece of software. A piece of software is, is the end to having a long-term relationship and partnership with your customer. So customers, we 
you know, first started with back, you know, very early on, 15 years ago, we still have as customers and we still have as partners. Um, and so we have always had the vision that, you know, we are, we are here in the long term to be uh, hand in hand with you, with your business. This isn't to use a very old analogy. We're not handing you a CD-ROM and saying, go install your software and good luck, right? <laughs> I know nobody does that anymore, right? We, we all have to download it and stream it or whatever. But <laughs> Did you just give me 100 free hours of AOL? Is that what you just told me? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I think it has to all first come and stem from that philosophy, right? We're in this for the long run with our customers. We're coming at it from a, a level of experience in the industry that you're not here to teach us the business. You know, we're here to understand how you do your flavor of business and how and the uniqueness that makes you you in terms of how you how you offer or create your value proposition to your customer. But ultimately, we're here to add to that to provide a solution. And if you instill that with all the folks that you bring on board, your goal and your mindset shifts, right? Ultimately, it's all about, okay, well, the customer has a problem. How do we come to a solution with that? And I know that sounds kind of very canned or very, very kind of, you know, common response or, or explanation, but culturally, you know, I've worked, you know, worked on the utility side, worked for other cus uh, companies. It's very, very easy to become inwardly focused and as soon as you become inwardly focused, then everybody's just worried about the things on their desk, right? They're not worried about, they're not, they're not concerned with what's happening from the customer side. And I think that then transforms to how do people think about what they do day in and day out, right? Are, are they worried about shuffling the paper from their desk to the other, to the other person's, or the other, the other functional areas paper, or are they having a dialogue with the customer that when the customer asks for something, you come back and you say, well, okay, I understand what you're, I understand what you asked, but can we go a little bit deeper with it? Can you tell me, how does this fit into your business process? How does, how is this actually getting you a better product with your customer so that we can come back with something that's more comprehensive or might even be a better answer? Because a lot of times people ask the question, right? They ask it the, the very simple question, but without any context. And so, as you go through that dialogue with your customer to be able to walk through, well, don't just kind of, well, let's, let's not stop at the simple question, but what is this actually, where's the business value coming in this conversation and how can help you actually build that business value? You start instilling that in your people and the folks that you bring on board. Um, and I think it just starts to naturally stem then as an entrepreneurial environment because people are focused on, solving business problems from the customer perspective, not solving a specific inwardly focused issue. We'll get you out of here with this, Mr. Marola. Renewables notwithstanding, or maybe renewables withstanding, what's on the dock for 2021? And what's kind of the next big hurdle that you guys are trying to cross in 2021 and, and, and beyond? It's probably not the sexy answer, if you will, but it's really, as we continue to look at this space, right, it's, it's working with our customers as to how all these pieces get integrated, right? I think everybody's still struggling with the challenge of how do you bring together the quantity, the renewables, the demand response, all of those pieces into something that resembles a cohesive offering and how do those pieces interrelate to each other? There's a lot of complexity behind that to make 
the offerings simple ultimately for the consumer. And so continuing to leverage, you know, what we've built and the, the knowledge base there as our customers continue to evolve through that process and, and mature, that's really going to be the continued, you know, next hurdles. And then interjecting, of course, um, more and more of, uh, of the data science on that, you know, understanding customer behavior, customer trends, the historic patterns they've shown to make those decisions then as to, okay, well, what combinations of offerings make the most sense for a given customer? Because if I look at the cust- you know, this customer's history, given the way that their business operates, they operate, you know, one shift. And this looks like kind of their relationship between energy consumption and temperature or, or other factors. How do I then overlay all that information and all that data that I'm collecting about the customer to be able to say, all right, well, how do I then position those combinations of value proposition into something that makes the most sense for that individual customer. I mean, much like what you see in, you know, a lot of industries now, whether it's, you know, Amazon or Google and kind of the tailoring of offers for individuals based on the information, the data they're collecting from you. That's what we're working more and more with our customers on. How do you tailor those offerings based on the more and more information that you understand about your customers and how they behave and then take into account all these new options from an from an industry perspective be able to put forward something that's really meaningful to the customer you know help them with things like carbon footprint energy savings and financial savings you know all at the same time that's tailored in a way that meets their desires Thank you for that, Mr. Marola. You can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at erenew.net. And of course, you can also get them over at Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to check out our brand new podcast feature, the short form edition of the Green Insider, the Power Chat. That's also available on Apple iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can check it out on the website as well. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today and all the e-renewable team, Mike Niemer and Niemer, Roger, and everybody that makes it go. This has been the Green Insider Podcast powered by e-renewable. We make going green easier.